follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today because the topic that we're going to be discussing is so important. We're going to be talking about chemicals that are present in just about everything we touch uh, in our homes, in our offices, in our schools. And we're going to be talking with a subject matter expert, Dr. Sarah Jansen, on the ways that we can be aware of and eliminate unnecessary chemicals from our lives. And we might be touching on some uh, products or some services that are very familiar in your day-to-day routine. And so it's really going to be interesting, I think, to, as we discuss this with Dr. Jansen, to learn where maybe there are toxic chemicals hiding where we didn't even know that they were there. And so I'm really excited to have her on. Uh, welcome, Dr. Sarah Jansen, to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I just have to give full disclosure to my listeners. Um, I'm, I have a ready-made pre- preferential treatment to Dr. Jansen because she is a fellow alumna of the University of Illinois, just like myself. So, uh, so you know great things come out of the University of Illinois. And so uh, I'm right. really excited to have you on. <laughs> Go you know, Go Illini, that's right. Uh, you recently wrote a blog entry on the uh, Natural Resources Defense Council or NRDC website that discussed the fact that California has just added a chemical called BPA to the Prop 65 list. And I know that a lot of our listeners, you know, may have some knowledge of what BPA is, some do not. And a lot of people who are listening aren't familiar with California's Prop 65 list at all. They don't even know what that is. So if you could help our listeners understand why this move was so significant, that would be great. Sure. So BPA stands for bisphenol A, and um, I I think it really has become a household word, even though it's it's a chemical, um, because it really came to light um, when moms got really angry that this chemical was being used in baby bottles. And that's because bisphenol A is an estrogen-mimicking chemical. It mimics the female sex hormone estrogen. And in hundreds of studies, it has been linked to a wide range of adverse health effects, including problems with reproduction, development of the brain and nervous system, and even a predisposition to certain types of reproductive cancers like mammary or breast cancer and mm-hmm. prostate cancer. And um, it used to be used in baby bottles. It was the building block, uh, or it still is the building block, of polycarbonate plastic, 
which is no longer used for uh, making baby bottles. You'll, you'll notice that most baby bottles and even the reusable uh, water bottles that are popular for hiking and backpacking, uh, they all used to be made out of polycarbonate, which is a great plastic because it can be dropped and it doesn't break and it's reusable. You can fill it up. You can throw it in the dishwasher. But unfortunately, the BPA that was that's used to make that plastic doesn't stay in the plastic. And especially with use, it migrates out into the liquid. And that first liquid that we give our babies, milk, whether it was formula or breast milk in those bottles, was going right into their very sensitive developing systems. And so uh, five years ago or more, uh, a number of major retailers, Target, Toys R Us, Walmart, um, all said to their suppliers they didn't want to have BPA in their baby bottles anymore because the moms and parents and grandparents were all demanding it. Mm-hmm. And that was great. And it, it literally changed the market, and now you really can't find a BPA baby bottle. But unfortunately, most of us still carry measurable levels of BPA in our body. I would say 90 or more percent of us have measurable levels. And that's because BPA isn't just used for making polycarbonate plastic, but it's also used in food can linings and um, especially uh, thermal paper receipts, those receipts you get when you pay with your credit card, and it pumps out that receipt out of the, out of the gas station pump or at the store. Um, those receipts are coated with bisphenol A. And so we, those chemicals get into our body either by consuming canned foods, and that includes canned beverages, beer and soda, uh, as well as um, touching these paper receipts. So in California, we have something called the Prop 65 list, and this is um, chemicals that are recognized by the state to interfere with reproduction um, and specifically to cause birth defects or um, to cause cancer. And there are a number of ways that chemicals can get on the list. Um, One of the ways is if if a federally recognized program acknowledges that the the chemical causes this kind of harm. And so um, based on a 2008 report by the National Toxicology Program, California put BPA on this list of chemicals. Now, being on the list doesn't um, mean anything other than uh, if, the, if a product contains the chemical, it might have to have a warning label. And the warning mm-hmm. label says something to the effect of this product contains chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer or birth defects. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It, um, it's a really important listing because it, um, it could require, it could result in labeling, and it also just makes it official that our state thinks this chemical is bad and it shouldn't be in, not necessarily that it shouldn't be in consumer products, but that people should be warned if it's in their products. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the chemical industry, which um, makes this chemical and uses it in a number of products, disagreed with the listing and took the listing to court. And uh, the court agreed that while the, the case was being reviewed, that the chemical shouldn't be on the Prop 65 list. So a week after it was put on the list, it was actually taken off. And now we're in a little bit of a, a limbo period while we wait for the court to review it. Um, we were disappointed with that decision, but we, don't think, we know it's not a final decision, and we think um, BPA is going to be back on the Prop 65 list where it belongs. Mm-hmm. And we fully support the listing and believe that the state was right in the first place to list the chemical. Well, let me ask you this, you know, on what grounds does the chemical industry stand? I mean, do they, um, do they dispute the scientific studies that you cite that, that link BPA to these ill health effects or do they have some other argument for keeping 
you know, BPA in products? Well, there is a lot of controversy around the science on BPA, and, and that's um, because this chemical has really been intensively studied, and science is, um, you know, there's always differences in ways studies are conducted and, and um, the findings and how they're interpreted, um, who does the studies, what animal model you use, um, what conditions the animals are housed in can all affect the outcome of the experiments. And so, you know, regardless of what chemical you might be studying, whether it's BPA or something else, there's always going to be inconsistencies in the science. Um, but interestingly, with BPA, when you look at who's funded the studies, most of the studies that were funded by independent academic scientists have found evidence of harm with exposure, especially when the exposure occurs early in life, either in the womb or early in childhood and during development. When the studies are funded by the chemical industry, not surprisingly, they tend to find no evidence of harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really important when considering the, the science to look at who's funding it because that, that definitely creates a bias that's not unique to BPA. It's been shown with a lot of different chemicals um, dating back to the days of the tobacco um, industry. And uh, the other part of it is that there's a lot of consistency in many of the outcomes from different research groups using different animal models. Um, which all sort of point to this problem of BPA causing a lot of harm. And really we come back to, you know, is it better to be safe than sorry? You know, do we have to count the number of tumors that show up in people or how many people end up with fertility problems down the line or how many um, uh, people have, you know, problems that might be related to BPA exposure? Um, Or should we just take a precautionary approach and get it out of products, limit people's exposure, because there's enough science there to indicate that we shouldn't be exposing ourselves on a daily basis to this chemical. I've read that some of the alternatives to BPA could be just as harmful as BPA itself, um, maybe even more so. And so when consumers are evaluating products that they bring into their homes and they see one that's BPA-free, is there more that they need to know in order to be certain that that product is safe? Absolutely. This is... um This is something that's really, really important. Just because something is labeled BPA-free does not mean it's safe. Mm, Um, Tell us more. (laughs) Unfortunately, we we really can't take a lot of um, comfort in buying a BPA-free product and thinking that, you know, we're off the hook for any chemical exposure. Um, So, And I'm not immune to that. I'll I'll give a personal example, which was when I was pregnant five years ago with, with my daughter, I knew about BPA and baby bottles, and so I wanted to find a baby bottle to use for her that was going to be safe. And um, glass would have been my preferred um, type of bottle, but uh, they weren't available. As soon as they, they were backordered everywhere, and as soon as they were on store shelves, they were scooped up right away. Um, so I went with an alternative, which was a, a BPA-free bottle that was sold at a natural food store. And um, so I thought, you know, looking at what the what the descriptive name was that it was okay and it was labeled BPA-free. Um, and then I found out several years later, after my, long after my daughter was no longer using the bottles, um, that it was made, um, the building block of the plastic that was in that bottle was something called bisphenol S, so BPS, which mm-hmm. is a chemical cousin of BPA, not nearly as well studied, uh, but but what little evidence or what little bit of research has been done is is really concerning because it's also an estrogen mimicking chemical 
um, that, you know, probably is going to interfere with hormones. So oh, even wow. I couldn't do the right thing in that situation, and I think it puts parents and consumers in a really bad place. Um, and it's just a really good reminder that we can't shop our way out of this problem and that buying something BPA-free really doesn't mean that it's necessarily safe um, for us. And really what we need is regulation and um, change at the federal level to ensure that chemicals are safe before they're put into our consumer products so that we don't have to go out and get extra lessons in chemistry to try to figure out what's safe for us and our families. Well, you know, and it's interesting. I've had guests on Go Green Radio before who have talked about some of these issues. And one of the things that kind of aggravates me as a mom of three is that, you know, if I want to go and buy, you know, a certain food for my kids, I can see the ingredients. I can see the nutrition label. I can even see if there's something in the food that could cause an allergic reaction if they're allergic to certain things. But what I can't see is the chemical compounds in the packaging that the food you know, that comes in and that, that's really concerning because, you know, for those of us who are trying to really look at these labels and do the right thing, um, that the, the, the food itself is only part of the story, but the food packaging or the beverage, uh, you know, containers that we're going to be using and putting, um, the, those beverages that we're serving to our family in, you know, really, we, it's really hard to find out what's in them and if they're safe or not. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about some other chemicals in our homes and in our lives that uh, may be toxic, may be harmful, and ways that we can uh, look at alternatives and ways that we might be able to rid our environment, both indoor and out, of these harmful chemicals. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck.
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to our guest, Dr. Sarah Jansen, who is with us today. She's one of the senior scientists with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Some of you know them as NRDC. And she has done quite a bit of research in the areas of flame retardants, cosmetics, plastics, uh, breast cancer, and threats to adult reproductive health and child development, and studying the effect that a variety of chemicals have on our health in these variety of areas. Um, she is been working at the UC San Francisco. Um, uh, she did a resident and training there, and um, and she is a clinical professor at UC San Francisco. Um, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. I just am overwhelmed by um, all the various chemicals that you know the NRDC has information about on their website. One of the things that that you know really is confusing, I think, to a lot of consumers is the insurgence of, a, of these new products that seem so important to our health. Antibacterials, antimicrobials, you know, as, as we hear about superbugs and all sorts of infectious diseases going on around the world, it seems like the perfect way to combat that and to keep our family healthy and safe. But I'm not so sure that that's the, the case. Can you give us some background information on the, the wisdom of bringing antibacterials and and antimicrobial products into our homes. Yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, antibacterials uh, show up on hand soaps and cleaners um, in some of our kitchen products like cutting boards and uh, brooms, even some of our clothing that's labeled anti-odor. And really what that means is that they're impregnated with a chemical that will inhibit the growth of bacteria. And that sounds like a great thing. Um, except that the reality is that these chemicals don't really work. Um, in the example of, of hand soaps, just using plain soap and water, plain soap meaning nothing with any added chemicals, uh, is just as good at getting rid of uh, germs from your hands uh, as is an antibacterial soap. And, and so that's one. You're paying extra for something that doesn't really do anything extra for you. And then the second is that by rubbing this chemical into your skin, uh, your skin, of course, is the largest organ in your body, and the chemicals absorb across the skin into your bloodstream, uh, where it can actually cause harm to your health. Uh, one of the most commonly used chemicals in an, in an antibacterial soap is something called triclosan. And if you buy an antibacterial soap, you can just turn the product over and look for the active ingredient. And usually it's going to be triclosan. Sometimes it's another chemical called benzalkonium chloride. Um, both chemicals uh, actually haven't been shown to be any more effective than plain soap and water, and both chemicals have been linked to harmful health effects. Triclosan in particular is a hormone-disrupting chemical. It interferes with our body's natural hormones. Uh, it also has been shown to, um, at least in animal studies, interfere with muscle contractions and to promote allergic reactions. So there's really no good reason to use it, um, and a lot of reasons to actually avoid it. Uh, and that's what we recommend, just buy plain old soap and water and use good hand-washing techniques. A lot mm-hmm. of people ask me about using the waterless or alcohol hand sanitizers and whether those are safe, and they are. So it's perfectly fine to, to carry those and um, use those in, in lieu of running water when you're out and about. Oh, good. Well, that's good news. Now, when you say a hormone disruptor, you know, I, I know what that means because we've had, uh, some, some guests talk about that on Go Green Radio huh? before, but I think that, you know, when I'm talking to, 
you know, everyday soccer moms and we're having these discussions, you know, while we watch the kids play their games, that really isn't a familiar term or um, concept to a lot of folks. So can you help us understand what that means? If you ingest or are otherwise exposed to a chemical that can be a hormone disruptor, what does that actually do? Absolutely. So hormones are chemicals that our body produces um, on a daily basis. There are dozens of different hormones in your body. There are the sex hormones, estrogens, testosterone. Uh, There are hormones that regulate sugar in our body. Insulin is one of those. Uh, Thyroid hormone is another one that people are probably quite familiar with. It's really important for regulating metabolism. And in young children, it's very important for growth and development of the brain. Um, So literally dozens of different hormones in our bodies, and all of them are subject to being interfered with by chemical exposures. There are a number of chemicals that have been identified as so-called hormone disruptors, and that is these chemicals can interfere with your body's natural hormones and you know, essentially wreak havoc on the signaling system that they're intended to do. Um, so many chemicals have been shown to interfere with estrogen hormone. Um, others have been shown to interfere with testosterone and uh, the ones that I was talking about that are in soaps, uh, triclosan, uh, has been shown to interfere with thyroid hormone. And that's really of concern if you're a pregnant woman uh, washing your hands, um, ex- absorbing triclosan into your body, which can cross the placenta and potentially interfere with development of the brain. Uh, we don't have any evidence of that yet in humans, but there is some evidence in animal studies that that can happen, and that's of, of great concern. Mm-hmm. You know, another one of the chemicals that I was kind of surprised to see on the NRDC's um, spring cleaning guide, it discusses the human health impacts of flame retardants. And when I was growing up a uh, couple, three decades ago, um, these chemicals were supposed to be life-saving for children. I mean, I even remember having flame retardant pajamas. Um, but what does the most recent science tell us about the risks of having flame retardants in our homes? Yeah, so like the antibacterials and soap, flame retardants were added with good intention or are added with good intention to a lot of our products, um, and everybody hears that and thinks that's an added safety factor. Uh, but the reality, again, unfortunately, is that there's not a lot of evidence, especially when these chemicals are used in our furniture, that they're providing any safety benefit. Um, in fact, when they burn, they make fires more toxic by, by creating more toxic uh, fumes and gases, and um, when we're just doing going about our daily business, sitting on our furniture, you know, you plop down, you see that little dust cloud come up. That little dust cloud is full of flame retardant chemicals that you're going to inhale, or you might ingest if you sit and eat on your couch, which I used to do. Um, <laughs> and these and these chemicals are again um, very concerning for their toxic properties. Um, some are hormone disruptors. Others um, have been linked to cancer. You brought up the flame retardants in kids' pajamas. Kids' pajamas are still required to have flame retardant chemicals, but um, they don't usually contain the chemicals that we're talking about that are of concern in our furniture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the 1970s, your, um, your audience might remember that there were um, a group of chemicals that were taken out of kids' pajamas. They were banned or voluntarily recalled because the chemicals were linked to cancer. One of those chemicals was called chlorinated tris, and um, it was taken out of kids' pajamas because of its link to cancer, but it wasn't banned or removed from any other use in consumer products. And I had my own couch tested to see what chemicals were in it, and I bought my couch in 2007, 
so it's a relatively new couch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a uh, chlorinated tris in the phone oh. of the oh phone filling of my couch. So the thing that was taken out of kids' pajamas was in my couch foam, and it's linked to cancer. And that's really an uncomfortable feeling for me, and especially because I have a young daughter, um, yeah. and we, you know, she loves to sit on the couch and eat, and now I don't let her do that. Um, that's a really hard thing to explain to your kid, but if we can't put it on their, in their pajamas, why should we, why should we have it in our furniture? Um, oh, yeah. It's because of the, of the laxities in the laws that have allowed these chemicals to be used um, when, they're, when they're really known not to be safe. Wow. You know, a lot of households that have children also have pets. And I'm wondering if parents should be concerned about the kind of chemicals that we use to control, like fleas and ticks and things like that, because I know that's a concern for a lot of folks. Nobody wants fleas in their home. So is there a health risk for humans as we are applying these things to our pets? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, flea collars... Um, you know, the way that they're intended to work is to leave a residue on the fur um, that would repel fleas and ticks. And the residue is something that we can pick up by interacting with our pets. So giving them hugs, petting them, you know, a lot of kids put their face into their fur. Um, mm-hmm. And they're going to pick up all the, the pesticides, um, the chemicals that are used in the flea collars are pesticides um, and into their bodies. And that's potentially very dangerous, especially for small children, because these, um, the pesticides that are used in flea collars have been linked to abnormalities in brain development and cancer. Um, and kids are more at risk because, again, their bodies are growing um, rapidly and, and organs are developing and changing. Um, they also tend to put their hands in their mouths more often, especially smaller children tend to put their hands in their mouths more often. So if they touch mm-hmm. the fur and then put their hand in their mouth, they're going to get a direct ingestion of these pesticides. Um, well, what so, about the kind of flea and tick medicine that you, uh, you know, that comes in a liquid and you, you put it, you know, on the, on the uh, skin, of maybe down the spine of your dog or, or something? Is that safer than a flea collar? It is safer than the flea collars. It's, um, uh, again, there's going to be some residues that are going to be picked up. Um, those are different pesticides than the ones that are found in the flea collars. So they're, they're um, of a less concern. It's really the flea collars that we're most concerned about. Um, probably an even better option um, if you have to use a chemical treatment are the pill forms because they don't uh-huh. leave the residue on the fur. Um, and then, you know, it's not always uh, feasible, but really the least toxic option is to do combing and bathing um, to eliminate the, the pests on your pets and then to, to do things in your home like frequent vacuuming and cleaning um, mm-hmm. that would eliminate the eggs. Right. Speaking of eggs, <laughs> I have to bring this one up. Not my favorite topic. Our house has been hit with this before. But um, when when kids go to school, and a lot of schools are starting a new policy where, you know, just because a kid has lice, they don't necessarily send them home, which uh-huh. means before you know it, everybody gets a, to share their little friends and brings them home. Um, but one of the things that I noticed on the NRDC website was that a lot of the lice treatments that you can buy in the store might be harmful to kids. What's a what's a safe option if that uh, if if your little sweetheart brings home a thousand of her favorite little friends from school? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, lice lice are again one of those creepy crawlies, and nobody wants to have them in their home. But unfortunately, the one of the more common treatments is a pesticide that we apply directly to our kid's head, and and it's a it can be a fairly toxic um, pesticide. Lindane is the one that we're most concerned about. It has the trade name of Quell. Uh, it's not 
available for use in California because it's been banned here. But in many other states across the country, um, it's something that your doctor can prescribe. And it's one of those drugs that has a, a so-called black box warning from the FDA because it's been shown to cause seizures in kids. Um, and it's also a hormone-disrupting chemical. So we really encourage people to avoid using Lindane. Um, it's not a first-line treatment anyway, but sometimes when you have recurrent problems um, with head lice especially, um, you'll, you'll go to different um, pesticides thinking that, you know, maybe there's been some resistance that developed to the other ones that you're using. And resistance is something that head lice is really good at doing. Um, they, you know, the more they're exposed to, to chemical treatments, um, the more they develop immunity to them, and, and it's no longer effective. So lindane is one of those drugs that um, there's a lot of resistance to, and it doesn't work very well. But unfortunately, it's, it's the same as happened with other pesticide head lice treatments. And so our recommendation is that, you know, of course, you do a very thorough cleaning of all the um, bed sheets and bed coverings in the home, um, all the clothing that might have come into contact with the hair, and then to do uh, wet combing um, to pull out the nits. And if you're too grossed out by that, there are a lot of services that will, you know, come to your house and do it. They make house calls, or you can take your, your child there, and, um, and they'll do it for you. Um, it's really one of the, the least toxic and, and actually more effective ways of getting rid of them um, than using you know, a pesticide on your on your child's head. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but this has been extremely enlightening. And I know for a lot of young parents out there, this may be the first time you've heard of these things. And so there is a way to get more information. If you want to check out NRDC's website, um, they have lots and lots of good information and links to all kinds of information on chemicals and your children's health. And you can check that out by going to nrdc.org. Uh, we're going to be taking a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. It's so great to have you on, Dr. Jansen. I just think um, you know you're helping a lot of young parents as we're talking about some of the things that um, you know we. Without even thinking about it, we bring into our homes chemicals um, to clean things, chemicals to get rid of pests, um, chemicals, you know, in our in our furniture and what have you. And if it weren't for this information, if it weren't for programs like this and websites like the NRDC's website that give us a lot of great information, we might otherwise never know um, what's out there and what can harm us. You know, we were talking about a couple different bug situations, and there's a lot of news going on about bed bugs. And you know, they're kind of spreading throughout the U.S., and a lot of people might be inclined to just bug bomb their house or use other pesticides to combat them. What is the safest way of dealing with bed bugs if they end up in our homes, Dr. Jansen? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think it's something that a lot of people are really really worried about or they've been already hit with it and, and it is an increasing problem. Uh, part of the part of the problem has been that bed bugs, just like the head lice we were we were previously talking about, are really good at developing resistance to pesticides. And that means that the pesticides no longer work at killing the bugs like they used to. And so bombing our houses with potentially toxic pesticides really isn't the best way to treat the problem because it it might not work, and yet you've left a residue of, of chemical uh, throughout your house. So we have some information on our, our website, but really it's just very simple things of, you know, washing a lot of materials, um, removing clutter where the bugs might hide, especially, unfortunately, you might have to throw away some things um, that are, like, very plush, like stuffed animals or plush pillows, throw pillows that might be on your bed um, where the bugs can hide in the little nooks and crannies. Um, and and also you should wash all your carpets or shampoo all your carpets um, to try to eliminate all the bugs. Um, if you have a persistent problem, it might require replacing some items, including your, your carpet. But um, spraying is probably not the best solution because, especially if you live in a big apartment building, um, the bugs might come back um, if, if they're oh, at your yeah. neighbors. And so you're going to be doing repeated sprayings and exposing yourself to chemicals. Um, the bugs... You know, the good news is while they're creepy crawly, the bugs don't really carry any disease. So, you know, being exposed to them isn't necessarily exposing you to uh, a bug, a, a disease that the bug might carry. I know, like, people can get a lot of bites and um, have infections from those, which is, of course, um, really gross and probably mm-hmm. not something you want to deal with. But um, the, best, the best way to deal with it is a, a non-toxic way. Mm-hmm. Now, the NRDC has a spring cleaning guide that's on their website, and it also talks about eliminating harmful uh, herbicides, weed killers that we might want to put out on our lawn this spring. Um, talk about some of the herbicides and pesticide chemicals that we should avoid and why we should avoid them, and maybe the best way to ensure that those chemicals, if we use them out on the lawn, don't end up inside our homes. Yeah, so this is a really pertinent topic for this time of year when people are out fertilizing their lawns. And at a lot of the big box um, stores, you can buy a a product that's a joint uh, fertilizer and pesticide treatment. They're often called weed and feed lawn care products. And it's a combination of fertilizer with a pesticide that's intended to kill weeds so you can have a nice pretty lawn. Um, Unfortunately, it's kind of a it's an overuse of the pesticide because you don't necessarily need to spread the pesticide all over your lawn um, while you might want to fertilize your entire lawn. And so a a better solution 
is to do spot, well, first of all, you could just do weeding, which some people don't want to do because that is more time-consuming, but you could pull the weeds out by hand, and if, and then if that wasn't a good solution for you and you wanted to do something that's more of a spray or a chemical treatment, then you could do spot applications in problem areas um, with pesticide um, chemicals um, mm-hmm. that, you know, you could only, maybe you only have to do it once or twice a season, um, and then you could do weeding afterwards. So it would really sort of reduce the amount of pesticides that you're putting on your lawn. Um, that's good for your family because if you want to go out and play in the, in the yard, you're going you're gonna to pick up those chemicals on your feet and on your clothes. Um, your pets, if they go outside, they're going to pick up the chemicals. And then, of course, when we have big rains, um, those chemicals are washed away and they get into the um, sewage system and into the, the water effluent and they end up contaminating our streams and rivers. Um, and eventually, you know, making their way into wildlife, which is um, not something that we want because it's not healthy for them. Well, and it also gives uh, another reason for every, whether it's mom, dad, or whoever does the cleaning in the house, to say to everybody, take off your shoes. Because once you've cleaned that floor, you don't want to get it all messed up. But there's a health reason why we shouldn't be wearing our shoes in the house as well. Enlighten us. That's right. Um, So shoes um, pick up a lot of things throughout our our day. So we walk through areas that might have been sprayed with pesticides that we're not aware of. Mm -hmm. We can pick up pesticide residues on our shoes. Um, A lot of soil has um, legacy contamination with heavy metals like lead. So um, we might track heavy metals into our homes because we walk through dirt that has contaminated with it. And so a way of just keeping all of that stuff outside of, out of our houses is to leave our shoes at the door and have, have a pair of shoes that you wear just inside. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've even, you know, shown my kids where the air intake, you know, for our ventilation system is. It's down on the floor. And so I said, guys, look at this. Doesn't this make perfect sense? If you track stuff into the house and right here is where the vent is and it gets sucked up into that, guess where it ends up? In our ventilation system, and that's the air that you feel blowing out of the vents, whether it's the heat or the air conditioning, it becomes part of the the air that we breathe. So, you know, let's protect our indoor air quality and take our shoes off. I think it went over their heads, but I'm going to keep saying it every day, (laughs) just just in case. Sometimes, you know, it it does, you know, repetition does help. Um, It's a simple thing to do, but um, it's not always an easy habit to break. It's not. You know, for a lot of us, um, taking clothes and household items to the dry cleaners is just part of our weekly chores. Um, but there are some unsafe chemicals and there are safer chemicals um, that are used in dry cleaning. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand uh, which is which, how we can find out if our dry cleaner is using a safe chemical or not. Yeah. So there are um, there are a lot of... Uh, toxic chemicals that have been used in dry cleaning over the years. Um, Some of those toxic chemicals have been replaced with what were thought to be less toxic chemicals, but now that more research has been done on them, we're finding that um, they also have been linked to respiratory problems and cancer. And so um, a lot of dry cleaners are uh, retrofitting and changing um, how much chemical is being exhausted from their facility, which is great for people who might live above a cleaner's or who might work near there. But we are still going to, if you take your clothes to a dry cleaner, they're still going to be have residues of those chemicals on them when you bring them home. And 
you know, you have them in that plastic bag, and then you take that black, that bag off when you get inside the house, and then the chemicals are in your in your closet or in your bedroom or wherever you might might keep them. So there are there are green cleaners that have cropped up, but it's a little bit of a buyer beware situation because um, the green um, cleaners don't use the the solvents, which were chemicals like PCE, um, but they use other chemicals that haven't been very well tested and um, are of concern for um, other health impacts, you know, like hormone disruption, which we've talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so um, really what is, is showing up to be some of the safest in terms of chemical exposure uh, to dry cleaning is, uh, is a process called wet cleaning, um, where the dry cleaners use um, less chemicals in a, in a, in a different process that um, is going to reduce the chemicals um, that are um, used in the shop and that are going to come home in your clothes but still are safe for mm-hmm. clothes that are labeled dry clean only. So I would look for a wet cleaner in your neighborhood. Um, I think we do have some information on our website about how to find one of those. Okay. And we have a lot more information about you know the different kinds of chemicals that are used in dry cleaning and, and those that are um, of concern. And again, that website, just for those of you who may want to check it out, don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com, but you can open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.nrdc.org. That stands for Natural Resources Defense Council. And there's some great information there. You know, in, in talking about some of the, the effects that, that chemicals have, of course, cancer comes up. For a lot of us, um, specifically breast cancer, has hit very, very close to home. And I know that this has been a subject of your research, and I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with us the role that chemicals play in this deadly disease. A lot of us focus on family history and, and other contributing factors, but in your experience, what role do all these chemicals that we've been talking about play in breast cancer? Yeah, it's a it's a really important topic. Breast cancer, of course, is one of the most common invasive cancers in women. It's one of the leading causes of death in women, and all of, you know, all women have a one in eight chance of contracting breast cancer at some point in their life. And so, it's something that that I'm sure many of us have either experienced ourselves or have a loved family member or friend who has um, has suffered through this disease, and. You know, there's been a lot of attention, especially recently, um, to the genes that have been linked to breast cancer, but the reality is that those genes make up a very small percent of the cases of breast cancer. Um, genetic links to breast cancer overall are, are thought to be less than a quarter of all the incidents of disease. In other words, three-quarters of breast cancer is not because you have inherited bad genes. And so what, what is the link there? What, what are the causes of breast cancer? And, and a lot of women have done everything right. You know, they didn't drink, they didn't smoke, they ate organic food, they exercised, they weren't obese, um, they didn't delay having kids until, um, you know, they were much later in life. And so, you know, they wonder, what did, what did I do wrong? And, a lot, of, and there are a, lot, a lot of questions have been raised about whether chemicals um, might contribute to the either the onset or the progression of disease. And we have a a lot of emerging data from animal studies especially that chemical exposures that happen in the womb can set the breast tissue up um, for a predisposition to cancer later in life. Wow. And and in all, over 200 chemicals have been identified which are linked 
to breast cancer in animal studies. And some of those are, are chemicals that we come into contact either in the workplace or in our, in our, daily, um, our daily lives. Um, BPA was a chemical that we talked about earlier, and that's a chemical that's been linked to breast cancer. And unfortunately, most chemicals aren't tested at all for their safety. And when they are tested, um, development of the mammary tissue or the breast tissue is not one of the endpoints that's uh, frequently looked at. And so that's something that our work has really focused on is, is getting better testing of chemicals and their impacts on development of the breast so that we can have a better understanding of the links of chemical exposures and development of breast cancer. You know, another area that I know is is kind of, I think, emerging. And I, I think that, you know, some people who are in the echo chamber of the environmental world and everybody they know is well-informed may think that everybody knows about this. But I have two daughters myself. Um, and besides, you know, all my warnings about things that could affect their health in terms of breast cancer and what have you, um, they have no idea, except when I tell them, because they're not hearing it anywhere else, about the impact that chemicals used in cosmetics can play on their health. And and I would really like for you to educate our listeners about, you know, what is going on? I know that, that, you know, there have been various bills that have been brought up in, in various states and there are campaigns going on to educate consumers and to help remove some of these, um, harmful chemicals from cosmetics. But could you spend some time educating our young women and, and those who love young women who are listening to us so that they can explain this? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I think it's, it's an interesting experiment to do. Uh, when you're getting ready for your day or in the morning or whenever you're, you know, taking a shower, just to count how many different products you use um, from the time that, you know, you, you get out of bed until you walk out the door um, and how many of those things you're applying to your skin. Um, for the average person, it's, you know, it's close to a dozen. Um, and if you get out your magnifying glass and you look at all the ingredients that are on the label of those products, you're going to see long names of chemicals, some of which, you know, you can never pronounce. And unfortunately, most of those chemicals have never been tested uh, for their links to breast cancer or to any other health outcome. And some of those chemicals um, are increasingly being um, shown to, to be linked to harmful health outcomes and, and especially to hormone disruption. And what can consumers do? Where do we find safe alternatives? Or should we all just go au naturel? <laughs> Well, um, a lot of um, some cosmetic companies, you know, are are doing a much better job of labeling their products and saying, you know, for example, it doesn't contain phthalates, it doesn't contain parabens. Um, there are uh, web databases that you can look at. One is the the database for the campaign for safe cosmetics. It's called Skin Deep, and mm-hmm. um, that will rate products by their ingredients. And it's a it's a fairly simple labeling system of red, yellow, and green to give you an idea of, of, you know, the kinds of ingredients that you should look for. And it even looks at particular brand names and products that you might have in your, in your bathroom cabinet. Um, so you can, you can use that database um, to try to identify safer products. So it's called Skin Deep? That's right, Skin Deep. 
Okay. I encourage our listeners to check that out because, um, you know, it's not just about makeup. I mean, cosmetics is much broader than that. I mean, we're talking about shampoos, lotions, and what have you. So even you guys out there, you may not uh, admit it, but we know you use those things, and it's something that we all should be looking at. You know, for a long time, I did not have... Uh, one of the products that I've seen listed on the NRDC website, I didn't have nonstick cookware. And I did a lot of scrubbing and took a lot of uh, ribbing from some of my friends and some of my family members for not having nonstick cookware. They just couldn't believe that I would uh, circumvent that modern convenience. But the fact is, some of those chemicals that are used to coat the pans are potentially harmful. And so I'd love for you to discuss what our alternatives are for cookware in our homes. Yeah, so the concern about chemical exposures from cookware is because of the, the nonstick coating or the Teflon-like coating mm-hmm. is um, made of a, a group of chemicals called perfluorinated chemicals. And so these are chemicals um, that have been linked to cancer, to hormone disruption, um, to interfering with um, cholesterol in the body. And, um, and it's, again, one of those chemicals that's we're widely exposed to. Almost everybody has measurable levels in their bodies. Um, and so you can get exposure from cookware, um, especially when the cookware gets a little bit older and that, that coating starts to flake off. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, these chemicals are also approved as food additives, and they're used in wax paper linings and food wrapper linings, sort of that grease-resistant lining that you might find in a microwavable food. And that's oh, where yeah. a lot of us are going to be exposed. Oh, is this where the microwave popcorn situation, you know, and all the the news that we saw about making that safer came from? That's part of it. Yeah, the um, the the lining of the microwave popcorn bag has a perfluorinated chemical. So, what's safer so. than Teflon? I mean, what could we use for a cookware that you know is still modern, still convenient? Um, you know, are there alternatives to nonstick cookware that are still you know, a little bit easier than those yeah, uh, pots and pans scrubbing that we really don't want to do? There are. Um, I think there's been a bit of a resurgence for cast iron cookware. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of helpful websites and tips about how to care for your for your cast ironware. Um, also, ceramic-coated cookware is another very popular um, type of, of coating. Um, it's a little more inert, and so there's less... Um, migration of chemicals into the food when you're cooking them because, of course, the concern is when you're cooking something that's fatty or at a high temperature, some of the chemicals can leach out of the coating and into the food. And so if you're using something that doesn't really have a coating, then um, then it's you know there's less likelihood that you're going to be introducing chemicals into your food. Makes perfect sense. Now, I have to ask the question. I mean, I don't want to get political necessarily. I just would like to know, you know, where where our government is on some of these issues. What is the FDA doing about all of this chemical exposure? Well, it's a little bit hard sometimes to know which agency is in charge of, of the chemical. Um, if, it's, if it's something that's um, added to food packaging, it's regulated by the FDA. Cosmetics, personal care products, antibacterial soaps are all regulated by the FDA. And um, the answer is that the FDA hasn't been very proactive in regulating chemicals that are, uh, <clears throat> that are used in food packaging or in cosmetics. Um, you know, a good example is BPA. So they, they have allowed BPA to remain in food packaging despite all the concerns that have been raised about its impacts on health. 
and we don't elect these people. So what do you recommend that everyday citizens do to influence the FDA if we don't feel like they're protecting the public adequately? What can we do? Well, you you, you don't elect people who are at the FDA, but, but your congressperson does have influence over what happens at the FDA. So you could write to your congressperson or during the summer recess, you could actually schedule a meeting with your congressperson just to raise concerns about the lack of regulation at the FDA. We have information on our website. Um, we have actually a, a whole webpage devoted to um, things that we think the FDA should be doing to better regulate use of chemicals in our food supply. Um, and so you could go there for, just for some information and talking tips. Um, you know, the other chemicals that we were talking about, like uh, the perfluorinated chemicals in our cookware, um, is, is one example, are regulated mm-hmm. by the EPA. Mm-hmm. And again, we don't elect people to, to be on the EPA. Um, but there are important um, pieces of legislation out there that can affect how the agency regulates chemicals. And in particular, um, most chemicals that we're exposed to on a daily basis that are in commerce are regulated by a law called the Toxic Substances Control Act, Mm -hmm. also known as TOSCA. And TOSCA was first passed in 1976, along with all the other major environmental laws like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. Um, But unlike those acts, it's never been updated since the 1970s. And it's arguably probably the worst and the weakest of all those environmental laws in that it's been really very toothless in its ability to regulate any chemicals. Mm-hmm. And so under that law, um, very few chemicals have been removed from the market. You know, one glaring example is asbestos. Um, the EPA has been unable to fully ban all uses of asbestos in the United States because of the weaknesses in Tosca. And so, wow. you know, you can just sort of imagine how hard it would be to regulate use of things like the perfluorinated chemicals in our cookware or the mm-hmm. use of formaldehyde in our furniture. Um, and so there's a lot of effort on behalf on behalf of NRDC and other environmental groups, business groups, health-affected groups to reform um, this law and make it so that chemicals are shown to be safe before they're before they're introduced into the market, and um, so that you know chemicals that are already on the market can be taken off the market if they're found not to be safe, which is something that the law is unable to do at this time. You know, in the absence of good public policy, one of the first places that I've always gone for information about my children's health is my pediatrician. And I've been a mom for over 20 years now. And, you know, I've taken them to the doctor whenever they're sick. I've taken them yearly for annual physicals. And never once has there ever been a pamphlet given to me or any advice given to me about chemical exposures and the health hazards associated with chemicals that are found in every grocery store in America. I mean, our doctor has talked to them about seat belts and bike helmets and now that they're teenagers, STIs, but never chemicals. And it seems like this group of individuals who that's their whole job is to look out for children's health should be kind of on the front lines of this issue. What's the deal? Why aren't we hearing this from all of our pediatricians? Well, that's right. They are, they are on the front lines and it's a really, it's a very good, what we call in the medical world, a teachable moment because, yeah. um, Young moms and kids, you know, they're, they're sort of like an audience that's um, learning and wants to do the right thing. And um, it's, it's unfortunate that your own pediatrician hasn't addressed these issues, but it's not necessarily true of all pediatricians. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, 
the American Academy of Pediatrics has been somewhat proactive on this issue. They've put out a number of policy statements and guidance documents about um, <clears throat> exposure to chemicals and um, sort of simple suggestions and things that we can be telling um, kids and moms and parents um, to do to limit their exposure to chemicals. And so they do have information on their website. Um, pediatricians have access to all of that. And really it's a matter of, you know, finding some time, just a couple of minutes is really all it takes in that, in that short 15-minute visit you might have with your patient to ask a couple simple questions or give some advice that's really topical to the, to the age of the patient that you're seeing that could impact their exposure to chemicals. Mm-hmm. So I think I mean, it's very doable, but we just really have to do a better job of, of finding a way for physicians to fit that into their visit. Well, I mean, there's a pamphlet for everything. I mean, honestly, when I come away from a well, well child visit, I'm loaded down with all kinds of stuff. And it seems like it wouldn't be that hard to slip in, you know, a list of, of chemicals or products or what have you that addresses this issue. And it really, it seems like it really could be, uh, ubiquitous and universal in a heartbeat if there was the will on the part of the, you know, American Pediatrics Association to make it such. But I, you know, I think we're moving in the right direction. A lot of, of doctors are, you know, willing to get on board with that. But, um, you know, I think we could do better. There's always room for improvement. Well, Dr. Jansen, it sure has been a pleasure having you on Go Green Radio. I learned a lot. I hope that all of our listeners did as well. And if you're looking for more information, I do encourage you to go out to the NRDC website and check out their information under the health tab. You'll find lots and lots of information about chemical exposure and how you can eliminate some of those chemicals from your life. And again, their website is nrdc.org. Well, until we are here, same time, same place next week, everybody have a great week and do some thing in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.